All right, good evening, church. Gosh, it feels good to be standing here and to look at live bodies. My goodness, I barely know what to do. Are you real? Are you avatars? I'm not sure. This is wonderful. Gosh. This is a great series. Um, I, a number of years ago, I preached uh, from this pulpit a number of weeks on this topic. And I cannot think of a more appropriate moment uh, that's needed for us in our culture than to figure out what it really means to be healthy. And I've entitled this message tonight, Healthy Says Who? John, in his third letter, writes, Beloved, I pray that in all respects, say all, that you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Let's pray. Lord, help us tonight hear well, but respond better. And Lord, we have to be empowered by your spirit to do both. To hear spiritually and respond in obedience. So we invite your Holy Spirit into this moment. God, do for us that which we simply cannot do for ourselves. Help us in this moment. Amen. So what is good health? It immediately begs a question when we read that passage. What does it mean? What does it mean? If you pick up anything and begin to read today, you'll invariably you'll get to the listicles. The listicles are articles that contain lists. That's a real word, listicle. I love that word. I don't get to use it nearly enough. And you begin to read through the listicle and you begin to realize seven steps to a better marriage. And you realize, I can't believe I've been married for 43 years because I didn't even get past number three. Seven steps to a better whatever or to, you know, hair growth. Obviously, that didn't work for me either. But you begin to read through the listicle and you begin to ask a question. Even if you started out feeling pretty good about yourself, you get through, uh, you know, somewhere and it's like, well, am I healthy enough? No, I'm worried I'm not. What are the benchmarks? Say, but Pastor Jim, I'm a Christian. I'm good. I don't know about you, but I, I know one or two jacked up Christians. I love you, but some of you in this room. Maybe you're listening tonight and and you love Jesus and Jesus loves you and you're going to heaven and you're all that in a bag of chips and you're still jacked up. Your thinking's wrong. Your emotions are out of whack. You know what I'm talking about. So what are the benchmarks? Physicians can... Assess our physical health. I mean, you go in and you get on the scale and it goes, boop, and the doctor says, mm. Let me take my shoes off and do it again. I ain't going to help you, champ. You've gone in and you've got blood work and they're looking at certain numbers to figure out if all the stuff on the inside that you can't see is operating optimally. And so the doctor can pretty readily assess Your physical health, your physical condition, he's got benchmarks for that. 
Physically, it's relatively simple. And yet you can be in absolute perfect health and still be emotionally unhealthy. Spiritual health. You can be doing all the right things. Reading your Bible. Come on. Every day. You can be praying. You can be not sinning nearly as much as you were last week. You can be doing all of the things that you think are going to somehow curry the favor of God in your life and make him like you more. And you can check all of the boxes. Congratulations. And you can have spiritual mentors around that can help you in that process. And I hope you've got some of those. And we can't assess some spiritual health by the absence of certain things like curses and emotional wounds and demons and all that stuff we want to get rid of. And then the evidence of the fruit of repentance in our life and the outworking of gifts and fruit. We have some indicators of spiritual health. But Pastor Jim, what if I'm doing all of that and yet I still know something's not right. I still don't feel, I, I, I don't feel good about me. I don't feel right about life. There's this anxiety. There's this fear. I'm not sure where it comes from. I'm doing everything that I know what to do. And yet, in all respects, he says, I want you to prosper and be in good health. How many of you know that Jesus is very holistic when it comes to assessing and getting us into a place of health. He's a holistic God. That's not something that was stolen. It's not marketing by a grocery store. God invented the idea of holistic in all respects. Because you see, God not only has an interest, but an investment in your health. And there's a big difference. It's one thing for me to be interested in you. It's another thing for me to have an investment in you. And God has made that investment. It's his testament to his life given for you and that life now living through you. You realize that health is the greatest tract that we have. It's the greatest evangelistic tool and methodology that we have. It's not Roman roads or, or, or God tests or whatever the latest evangelistic thing that's going to come down the pike in the next few years. It's looking at a changed life and a man or a woman that's living in a healthy way. And someone saying, I don't know what you got, but I want it. That's the letter. When Paul talked, when he wrote to the churches and said, you are my letter. You're the letter. We are the letter that there's someone that greater than all of this stuff that lives in us. That is the source of that health. In a real sense, our health is a part of our worship. Now, I tend to get in trouble when I talk about worship. Because I believe worship is far and beyond what comes out of these speakers. I believe worship, if we want to use that word in a holistic way, is everything that comes out of our lives. And so our health, our stepping into the fullness of that which Christ has attained for us is a part of our worship. 
Not just a sense of entitlement of I'm going to get mine and I'm going to get me some more of it. But it's a sense that we really don't have a testimony until the health that John speaks of is flowing in and through our life. Why would anybody want to buy anything else? That's like buying the, the proverbial saying of, of buying diet pills from someone that maybe needs a moment on the treadmill. It's like, how's that working for you, champ? I'm not buying hair. I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not selling hair growth treatment. Do you understand what I'm saying here? But it's the same thing for us as believers. The world, they're beat down and busted. Why do they want to buy into something else if it's not working for us? They don't say I can be busted without Jesus. Wow. It's part of our worship. It's our joy and enjoyment of him and living his best through us. I'm weary of hearing people talk about my best. I, you, know my, you know what my best is? It's a word I can't use publicly. My best is that pathetic. I want to live his best. His best through me. Wow. To prosper. What is that? What is it? Is it money? Is it something else? Is it compared to somebody else? I have, you don't. Does the mean set the standard? How do I get it? How do I get more of it? And the church is not immune to these questions, to this emphasis. Because as you well know, there is a world spirit that has infiltrated the church and it has perverted and distorted this gospel as to what prosperous really means. As a matter of fact, the perversion of that particular gospel has probably sidetracked more Christians in the past 50 years than anything that's come down the body of Christ. I'm less concerned about the forces of false religions and Islam and whatever else is coming down the pike than I am the perversion of that gospel within the church. And I'll give you a definition in a bit as to what I've come to as a definition of prosperity. But then good health. What are the indicators of emotional health? I mean, certainly COVID and its aftermath and the emotional and the mental toll that it's taken, not just on a people or a nation, but the entire globe at one time. I mean, you're reading the same things that I'm reading right now about the effects that this has had on people, the profound effects it's had. Kids that now have been taken out of normal socialization and the effects that it's going to have on them potentially long term. We've all read the same stuff. And it's given rise to a whole host of symptoms and diagnoses and therapies, et cetera, and so forth. And one of the biggest challenges that I believe in trying to discover what does God intend, what does the Bible say about emotional and mental health is that fleeting definition of happy that is somehow equated with health. It's that somehow we're worried we're not happy enough. 
An author wrote this, and I quote, In the 60s or 70s, we started expecting to be happy. And we changed our lives, left town, left families, and switched jobs if we were not. And society strained and cracked in the storm. Why? Because we lost the old knowledge that happiness is overrated, that in a way, life is overrated. That in a way, this life is overrated. We have lost somehow a sense of mystery. About us, our purpose, our meaning, our role. Our ancestors believed in two worlds and understood that this to be the solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short one. And we are among the first generations of man that actually expected to find happiness here on earth. And our search for it has caused such unhappiness. The reason that if you don't believe in another higher world, if you believe this is your only shot at happiness, then if the world doesn't give you a good measure of its riches, you despair. Oh, my. And the church took this one hook, line, and sinker. We call it triumphalism. Is that somehow the church is going to reign and rule over all of this? Now, in an ultimate sense, do I believe that? Absolutely. Do I believe in a now kingdom? Absolutely. But do I believe that in every moment of that kingdom being established, that is going to be one trip to Disney after the next? No, I don't believe that. And yet somehow we've bought into the idea that somehow our happiness is equivalent to our health. Therefore, if I'm happy, I'm healthy. How many of you know the problem with that is that sin makes you happy? So logically, it falls apart real fast as an argument, does it not? The Bible's real clear. Sin has in it pleasure for a what? A season. No one would sin if it didn't make them happy. So we can't put those two words together successfully. Wow. And it defines our expectations of not only this life, but God himself and the relationships around us. Because if those relationships exist to make us happy, then we cease those relationships once they make us unhappy. Uh oh. We wonder why the rate of divorce is the same in the church as it is in the world. We wonder why people, but why relationships have become so disposable at almost every level. It's just like, it's, it's like, if you wish, the relational correlation of Marie Kondo. If it doesn't bring you joy, well, dear. You're not making me happy right now, so hit the road, Jack. And while I'm not, I'm being a little, a little bit of levity in what I'm saying, you and I both know it to be tragically true. 
And whether it's in a marriage, whether it's children and parents, whether it's folk that come and commit themselves to a local church, a job, whatever it might be, it's not making me happy anymore. Therefore, this must be a toxic environment. Therefore, I'm going to label it as something and I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to go get in another one. Failing to realize that the common denominator every time happens to be, sorry, Eleanor Roosevelt made this statement. She says, happiness is not a goal, it's a byproduct. It's not a goal, it is a byproduct. And many times, it's the lack of happiness that brings us into even deeper places with God. And he takes us into better places in order to prosper. Being unhappy is not necessarily an indication of being unhealthy. Conversely, it can point to the very opposite. The most significant times of walking with my father in heaven is when he comes and he makes me unhappy. Son, no. No. Don't do it again. I love you. I love you. Don't do it again. And it doesn't make me happy to be brought up short because I want God to think I am that one special snowflake. I believe it. My wife doesn't. I don't know why. For some, some reason, you don't either. So I don't know. I'm, I'm in a minority. God will violate. You're happy to get you healthy. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verse 7. Endure. You know what it says? Hardship is discipline. Why? Because God is disciplining you as sons. Let me just tell you. There is a bastard spirit in the church. Ooh, can't say that. It's biblical. <laughs> of all the places where it shouldn't exist, it should be, it should not be anywhere close to the church. Jesus so intent about our sonship, he put his very spirit on the inside of us, testifying that we are God's children. He was that intent about dealing. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. And yet he comes to us and he disciplines us. And we go, <laughs> and yet it's in those moments that we know we're loved. Saints, listen to me. Sanctification was never intended to be comfortable. It's not a comfortable process. Sanctification was always come to say it's cross time. It's time for you to be a little bit less like you and a little bit more like me. It was never about our comfort, but always about our conformity. To not just his purpose, not just his plan. That's mission. Wonderful. But he wanted us to be conformed to his person. It's why we're called Christians. We are the representation of God on this planet. 
Wow. And then discovering the divine design. As your soul prospers, that somehow the benchmark, the comparison about which everything else is measured, begins to fade away. It's not a matter of what this person's doing. It's not about the highlight reel of their life on social media. It's not what they've acquired. It's not their degree. It's not their position. It's not about any of that stuff anymore. It all fades away and drops off. Wow. So what does it mean for our soul then to prosper? If not happiness. If we look at the components of the human soul, the soul is simply who we are as a person. It is your person. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. All right. And so the soul constitutes our what? Our cognition, our mind, our emotions, and our will. It's what constitutes the individual. And so let's look at all three of these in relationship to health. The first is Proverbs 23, 7. As he thinketh in his heart, what? So is he. It begins, if we want to talk about emotional and mental health, it starts with what? What we think about. What are we focused on? We know this passage, Philippians 4, whatever is what? True, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Think about such things. Guess what's absent from that list? You. And if you're like I am, most of what I think about is me. Close your eyes and you think, how's my hair look? Is my tie straight? Is my zipper up? How's my breath? And we immediately, when we, when we get into those places, it's amazing how we slip to the center of even our own imaginations. Oh, my goodness. And, we, and, and, and let me just say, when we are so consumed with self, we are called consumers after all, that the more we dwell on self rather than dwelling on Christ, it will always result in a downward spiral of health. If I continue to focus on me, come on, there's not going to be a whole lot of health to be found at the bottom of that spiral. Oh, my goodness. It's why it says in Psalm 1, his delight is in the law of the Lord. His, on his law, he what? He meditates. Come on. Day and night. Like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. Stop meditating on and measuring self. Think. The second are our emotions. Whose emotions? Ours. Or God's. And this becomes, to me, one of the trickiest parts of the sanctification process. It's one thing, it says that we have the mind of Christ, but it's not just enough to get the mind of Christ, the words of God. How do we capture his emotions about a thing? That becomes even trickier. And God has a tremendous palette of emotions. God invented anger. Because he invented it all. 
Now, the devil took it and perverted it, stole it, used it in illegal ways. But we know that God gets angry. The Bible said that he grieved because he made Saul king. We see God getting angry throughout Scripture. We're not told not to get angry. We're told in your anger, don't sin. There are certain things, ladies and gentlemen, that you should get angry about. Hello? Please, I give you permission. Get angry about unrighteousness. Get angry about sin. Get angry about the things that are destroying men and women's lives. You've heard me say this before. Part of loving God is loving what God loves and hating what God hates. We need to figure that out. Jesus wept. Overwhelmed at what he found there in John 11 when he showed up. Mary and Martha and Lazarus and everyone's grieving in that moment. He was overwhelmed at the pain and the loss. At, and, and, and can you imagine? Here is the architect knowing what his purposes are has caused all this pain. Jesus knows what he's about to do. He's about to glorify, to be glorified through the resurrection of Lazarus. And yet he was still overwhelmed and overcome by the emotions of the moment. Don't think you don't serve an emotional God. You do. The difference is God is not motivated by emotions the way you and I are. God never lets his emotions rule his purposes. He never lets his emotions override and overrule his holiness and his personage. I just buried my father. There were emotions and pain and grief emanating from me that I barely even knew existed. It was frightening. It scared my wife. I wasn't even aware that those kinds of emotions of grief existed. And I've been through some stuff just like you have. This was different. And yet in the pain of that loss, I realized a couple of things. Number one, the human condition was never intended to bear that pain alone. And my wife and I both remarked, how do non-Christians ever face death? How do they ever process this without the hope of resurrection, reconciliation in another place at another time? But it also gave me a unique glimpse into something else. It was the pain of what the father felt and what the son felt in their mutual loss while he hung on the cross. You know, we always think about what Jesus was feeling when the father turned his back as the sins of the world fell upon Jesus. But what was the father feeling to have to reject his son in that moment? And the mutual loss of the father and son, it hit me afresh in this particular moment. And yet, it's just for a moment. It all goes away. Do you understand? In the light of eternity and everything we teach and believe and hold to. And as our thoughts are not his, 
most of the time, neither are our emotions. And those emotions tend to be slower to come into the process of sanctification than even thoughts. Why is that? Because of the pain and damage that most of us have to our emotions. It's why we need in a divine exchange of ours for His. And of those emotions, we need to ask another question as we talk about mental and emotional health. To whom do we let these emotions be known to? My wife saw a measure of my grief that no other human being I would allow to see. My covenant friends, Duke and Kathy Bendix, they saw another piece. My children, their children, they saw another piece. And yet we live in a right-to-know moment where it seems like everybody wants to be in your business. And so we post it on social media. We put out there everything that's going. And even Jesus didn't do that. In the most significant moments of his life, he didn't even take the entire 12 with him. He took three with him to Gethsemane. Just three. And saints, let me tell you something. You better figure out who your three are. Figure out who they are now before you get to your Gethsemane. Our will or God's will. Our health is very simply our conformity to him. It's no more complicated than that. Thy will be done. That's how we were taught to pray. Jesus, in that, in that crucible, in that moment, not, thy, not my will, but thy will be done. And then what is prosperity? And I'll close with this. Here's my definition. Enough for self with more than an abundance left for others. You see, when we begin to talk about issues of health, it, 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 we, we, we many times reduce it to mine, my precious. <laughs> How healthy can I get? But could I submit to you that the healthiest men and women, it's not about their health. It's about their health as it could be manifested and given away. That becomes the real benchmark of mental and emotional health. Wow. A Newsweek article, 2009, Julia Baird writes, the most inspiring people are those the least obsessed with their own happiness, especially those who stride confidently across the globe to create, evoke change, or rest from life what they will. And as we discover, both health and prosperity are most often lived beyond self. In the giving we get, and in the giving we get healthy. World War II, the bombing of London. The bombing increased and psychiatric hospitals emissions decreased. The mental health community was saying as many as 4 million people are going to break down in the midst of all of this pressure. And yet there were only two bomb neuroses cases a week recorded during the bombing of London. It was recorded this way. One doctor remarked, chronic neurotics of peacetime now drive ambulances. It's amazing. Grace loves. 
I'm not concentrating on whatever my loss or my inconvenience has been. But I'm now going to transfer and translate that. And I'm going to take what I have and I'm going to now give it away. I'm going to sow it. And yeah, I'm in pain. Yes, I'm inconvenienced. Yes, I don't know where the next paycheck's coming from, but I can show up with Pastor Corey. I can fill a bag. I can write a note. And let me just tell you, I guarantee you, if you were one of over a thousand people that showed up to serve last year, I guarantee you there's health that flow to you as a result. Jesus was always considering others. Always. Priority beyond self. The father first. That was his primary orientation. It wasn't just to seek and save the lost. He was there to do what daddy told him to do. Period. But then secondly, it was the sheep. Even being crucified. Can you imagine? Forgive them. Forgive them. And that was not just a matter of staying off the wrath of God. But when the revelation of what they had done hit their souls. Jesus was proactively and preemptively speaking something to them. Forgive them. Because there's no way when they realize that they crucified not only an innocent man, but they crucified the very son of God. They're going to need something. And God, Jesus spoke something in that moment that was critical. Peter, knowing what he was going to do, I prayed for you. Jesus, always with a priority beyond self. And relational health is perhaps the best benchmark that we have of our emotional and mental health. The quality of relationships, and this is, this is a truism beyond the church, is that the quality of relationships equals a quality of life. It's no more complex than that. Period. And Jesus was the perfect model of health. Think about that. As a man, he embodied this 3 John 2 admonition of good health and prosperity. By contemporary standards, Jesus probably wouldn't be considered prosperous, even successful. And yet, he was the model of what we are trying to get to. Wow. And not only was he perfectly aligned with doing the Father's will, he was perfectly aligned with the Father in thought and emotions as well. And I believe that becomes our true benchmark of health. It's not just what it looks like and how we self-diagnose and how we kind of check the boxes for ourselves. But what does it look like moving What does it look like as I relate to Corey and Heather? What does it look like as I relate to June and Sarah? What what does that look like? And I got to tell you, to the extent that we can live our life without all these relational regrets. Are you hearing me here? That I don't have to put my head down when I walk by anybody. 
that I can look them in the face, then when I put my head on the pillow at night, guess what? I can sleep. You want a benchmark of health? Assess your relationships. We used to sing an old worship song back in the day. It was terrible, terrible musically. All of our songs were awful. But they were incredibly biblical and incredibly God-focused. We had this song and we sang it progressively slower and slower and slower every time it repeated. You ever had that happen? Till finally it sounded a bit like a funeral dirge by the time you got to the 17th repeat. But one of the lines went, let's forget about ourselves. Come on. And concentrate on him and worship him. Let's forget about ourselves. You know, and I believe, once again, that becomes a benchmark. Can we leave the emphasis of self behind and concentrate on him? Let me pray for you. Lord, help us hear well tonight. Lord, we thank you that you are vitally not just interested, but invested in our health. Lord, let it be a part of our testimony. God, let it be, if you wish, an act of our worship. Not just that we can get more for the sake of having more. But God, that we would have enough, but have an abundance left to pour back out in and on the relationships around our lives. Lord, bless these men and women. Help us. Amen.